Well, did I leave you wanting more? <laughs> Y'all got that? Yeah, it was kind of cool. That one was courtesy uh, Richard Mumpower. I had to leave that one on there for him. Uh, <laughs> he, he he sent me a message and we t- we spoke about this episode after he listened to part one. And he was telling me, he was like, I, I was left wanting more. And so uh, I figured I'd throw that one in there for him. Uh, but did, I don't know, guys. Have have y'all not been inspired yet to go get out there with them dogs and, and just rethink everything? Because I am. I can't wait to get this little pointer. Uh, it's it's going to be a good time. But this is what I want to do with the gun dog notebook, guys. This is the history that I want to talk about. This is the the type of training, the part of training that I'm into. I don't want to just give you the how-tos and, and, and one, two, three, you got a bird dog. No, I want to give you guys the real depth and insight and the, the, the beginnings of all of this. So, with that being said, my dog just barked. My garage is coming up. Um, with that being said, guys, thanks to everyone for supporting thus far um remember guys please check out my patreon account um and and subscribe and donate to that um all of your support monetary or non-monetary keeps me going it really does keep me going and the guests that i have on are so awesome i mean it's i think that it's 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 really doing something for my spirit as a as a trainer, as a hunter, as a wing shooter, just learning all of this stuff. So anyway, we are going to continue rocking and rolling with part two of the Gun Dog Notebook podcast, and we're going to keep rocking and rolling with Mr. Bud Moore. Y'all, let's 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 do it. Dog Notebook Podcast, a podcast featuring the stories, trips afield, and legacies that are left following great gun dogs and classy bird dogs. I'd like to thank my sponsor, the Pride Dog Food, for their excellence in performance dog nutrition and Orvis for allowing me the written platform for my outdoor writing. I'd also like to thank the other friends and contributors that make this gun dog community such a great thing. Thanks for listening. This is the next episode of the Gun Dog Notebook, hosted by Darrell Smith. At this point, I just I'm in I'm in gun dog heaven and I, I said earlier that I went to the Bird Dog Hall of Fame. Now you told me you were one of the original twelve that started that. 
1969, Delma Smith called a meeting and put a paragraph in the American Field saying, on such and such a date at 10 o'clock in the morning, a group of us are going to meet at, uh, and I believe it was a Ramada Inn at that time, mm-hmm. in uh, Oklahoma City, gave the address, uh, to discuss the formation of a Bird Dog Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, there were about a dozen or 15 of us there from all over the country. The Chamber of Commerce and the Better Business Bureau and the other powers that be in Oklahoma City had already talked with Delma and promised to give the Bird Dog Hall of Fame a plot of ground just to the west of the Cowboy Hall of Fame, Hmm. should we desire to put it there in Oklahoma City. Okay. And that's where we thought it should be, because that's the crossroads of the continent. Interstate highways going right by two sides of where this lot would be. Wow. Southeast and west. Okay. Interesting. There happened to be a fellow from Grand Junction, Tennessee there, and he never let on, but he was concerned. And we actually talked about money and made some promissory note-type commitments to the foundation of the Bird Dog Hall of Fame. And we raised about $10,000 that money of promissory note money to establish a Bird Dog Hall of Fame. Wow. This gentleman from Grand Junction went home, uh, went across the road to the gentleman that had the tax shop and uh, Wilson Dunn and told Wilson Dunn what had happened at the meeting. And Wilson said, doesn't some of your kinfolk own that land across the street? And he said, yes, they do. Uh, There's 4.2 acres there. Wilson said, then you cheapskate buy it from them and we'll build our own Hall of Fame right there. And they they got two pieces of old barn lumber, nailed them together, painted them and said, future site of the Bird Dog Hall of Fame. Went across and staked them in the ground, took a picture of it, and sent it to the American Fields. Wow. Oh, how did he convince the rest of the world that it should be in Oklahoma City when that's already published in the National Magazine? You don't. That's how the Bird Dog Hall of Fame came to be at Grand Junction, Tennessee. Get out of here. Get out of here. That's so wild. No, No, sir. Oh, my gosh. That is so wild. I mean, and that just, I don't, that just really blew my mind. Cause the first time I was there, first time I ever, the only time I was there was this past summer. And just to walk that property, you know, me, I'm 28 years old, newly married, got a Labrador, about to get a pointer, and probably a, a, a minority in the sport. That that type of history speaks volumes to me. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. And sure. to understand what what's going on, and you know, I don't think I would have been able to read that in a book. 
I, I don't. Maybe I could have, but I'm not necessarily sure if I could. And to walk around. I don't know that that story's ever been trimmed. I really don't. Well, it's an honor that you just shared that with me. Seriously. I mean, because, and I'll, I'll tell you how special it is to me. So when I go out um, and I work my own dog during the training, I wear an Ames Plantation hat. Like I bought a hat from there when I was there. Um, just to honor the history of that, of that area, you know, um, and now that I'm on the phone with you, that just makes that, that whole thing more special to me, but I'm sorry. I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt. Like, please continue. Well, ask me some questions then. I'll ramble if I just talk. Oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. Moore. I, when I tell you this is one of the most like significant podcasts I've ever done. And I do not mind you rambling. And I know my listeners, they do not mind you rambling. So we go, and I want to cover everything that you told me. I remember I told you I took notes that night. Oh my gosh. So you let me know when you get tired of me talking to you. Um, But anyway, so uh, let me ask you this. You told me that you do not believe in prey drive from a dog. I do not understand what the term prey drive is. I, you know, I've been around dogs for, oh gosh, all my life, literally, and I'm 77 years old, and I don't know what prey drive is. I know what makes a dog do what they do, and if you're talking about a sporting dog, whether it's a squirrel dog or a mountain cur, uh, whether you're talking about a, a lion dog or a coyote dog uh, or a bird dog or a springer spaniel or, or one of the uh, retrieving breeds, I know that they do that because of genetics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To me, prey drive is a is a yuppie word, uh, and it uh, it's used by people who don't understand good genetics. They want to bring out the prey drive in this dog. Prey drive is caused by genetics, if I get what they're talking about. The, the intensity that a dog has in his desire to find game, or his intensity in pointing, or his willingness to retrieve and bring it to hand, those are all genetic traits. Right. So you're not going to make that genetic trait any stronger by teaching that dog bad habits. I've had people say, oh, you throw birds in front of them and let them chase the birds. Uh, and that makes them the stronger bird dog out of that puppy. Mm-hmm. What it really does is make that puppy hard to break because you've encouraged him to chase. And if you're a bird hunter, you wanting to point, flash point, knock and chase that cubby of birds? Nope, I do not. I hope not. I do not. I hope not. I do not, 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 not. And that's, again, that's why I'm going with this with this program. I mean, you know, I'm I'm very big on understanding the history of this whole bird dog world, right? And... It seems to me, and I've always told people that for some odd reason, and and pardon me for saying this, Mr. Moore, but 
our bird dog and our forefathers, which I would consider you to be our bird dog forefathers. I think that I'm sorry. I look, I have to I have to give you the respect of that because y'all figured it out. Hey, well, then I, I hope you can understand where I'm coming from then. Um, you are, you are my bird dog forefather. And I think I owe it to you to have you on here to, to be available and stuff like that. But anywho, y'all figured it out. I tell people all the time. I was like, everybody that, that was working bird dogs in the sixties, seventies and stuff like that. And even going further back to your Ozark Ripley's and stuff like that. Y'all figured it out. There's nothing, I I mean, when I tell you the, you, I spent time on the phone with you for, I think probably an hour or so, maybe a little bit more. I can't get this information out of a book, Mr. Moore. Mm -mm. (laughs) You got to talk to the people that know. I always say that you have to talk to the people that know. You can't get it out of a book. And well, maybe maybe you and I need to write a book then. Well, you, you ask the right questions. I'll tell you the right answers. My way of thinking, and you write the book. Well, then and let's. Then people will tell us we're crazy. Good. Let them tell them. I want to be because I've been doing a lot of outdoor writing. I've told you that, and it would be an honor for me to write a book. And I'm going to declare that on the podcast. It would be an honor for me to to write a book on you. Come up to Kansas. I told you I was coming anyway. And we just going to sit and talk. If you don't mind me drinking a little bit of whiskey and writing everything down that you say, you'll have a book made. Well, if you can stand Knob Creek, why, come on. Oh, 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 oh. Did you say Knob Creek? Did you say Knob Creek? I will bring you a, a couple of bottles. Where the name Knob Creek comes from? Where did it come from? That was the name of the creek that ran behind the house where Abe Lincoln's parents lived when he was born. Oh my gosh, are you serious? I did not know that. Well, sir, I told you I was coming up there in the summer, so I will bring you two bottles of Knob Creek. How about that? How about that? How about that? Oh. <laughs> well, then we'll have three, and three is a good number, so it all works out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Mr. Moore, you, I'm, I'm telling you, and I'm one of them people, I like to talk. So I will come up there to Kansas, and I will talk your head off with that. As long as you let my little puppy come in and meet him, you know, I mean, meet you. Like, just let my little puppy meet you. <laughs> seminar that weekend when you come and we'll use your puppy in the seminar how's that let's do it then and uh oh my gosh you're not you're not giving me that honor are you because if so i'm gonna make it happen you know i like to make fun of people you know and what better way than to take their puppy away from them and and, uh (laughs) Well, look, I, you like to make fun of people, and I like to laugh at myself. So, look, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. All right. All right. So, we, you have my, my over-the-phone handshake for that. So, just, <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
I'm having too much fun. So just to continue with the podcast, and I'm going to split this up into multiple parts. I know I'm going to have to. Um, so let me talk about something that's been a controversial topic. The, the, the word breaking a dog. D- do you understand? Like the word breaking. What do you, what do you think about that? The general populace uses the term to break a dog to mean that you made the dog, notice I said made the dog, mm-hmm. steady, green, and chop. Right. Okay, if you go back to the key phrases that every scientist, and I have a master's degree in biology, mm-hmm. we ask ourselves where, when, why, and what. Yep. So if you take my way of thinking of this, breaking a dog, I start my puppies the day they're born. I start with them when they're three days old with neurologic stimulation. When they're six weeks old, they've already been to the pigeon pit. They're walking in front of me and I'm pushing them with long strides and a big hurried step, making their little legs just turn to stay in front of me. Right. So, to me, and I've got a game plan of step-by-step of teaching that dog to be in front of me. Mm -hmm. And then teaching that dog uh, to use his nose and smell. Teach that dog to point pigeons. Mm -hmm. I want my puppies pointing, solid pointing pigeons by the time they're eight, nine, ten weeks old. Absolutely. But the time they're 12 weeks old, I want them with a check cord on. I don't want any flushes, don't want any chases. 16 foot length of a check cord is plenty far enough for a dog to get a bad head built. Right. Absolutely. And you don't so want, yep. If you start this puppy at six weeks and you stack him up on the barrel and you lift his little head up by stroking between his front legs with two fingers, and you've got two fingers coming up between his back legs, going up his tail, and you're gently pushing him forward, and he stands still and pushes back on your hand a little bit, you swoop him up off that barrel and tell him what a good boy he is and play with him just a minute. Mm-hmm. You were there three, four, five, six seconds. That was a lesson that dog without puppy will never forget, ever. Right. With puppies, there are small windows of opportunity where when you plant something in their brain, they are faster than a computer to reach up and pull that folder out, open the folder and pull that file out. Get out of here. Are you serious? I know what woe means. He told me woe when I was six weeks old. Right. And that, and all they did was suck it up and now it didn't take much. Wow. No, no. Yeah. Teaching a puppy is like teaching a small child. It's an upside-down pyramid. And the point of that pyramid doesn't allow you much time or involvement. Is it real involved or teach a lot? You just show them what you want. You communicate with them what you want. When they do it, swoop them up, get them off of there, play with them, praise them. And scientists will tell you the best reward you could give a puppy is soft hands and praise. Yep. Wow. Again, Mr. So Moore, you are not going to find it in the world. word, whoa, at six weeks old. 
Just get the time they're four months old, 16 weeks old, they know what woe means. They know what heal means. They know what come. They know how to run in front of you. They know how to find important birds, because you taught them that early on with pigeons. Mm -hmm. So when they are going down an edge, and you've got a bird planted there, and they swap in to point that bird, and you walk around in front of them, and you point your hand up at them, palm out, or a finger out, and you've been doing that with that puppy since it was six weeks old. So you've been doing it for 10 weeks with this puppy. Mm -hmm. That puppy's not done. He knows when you hold that hand out, point that finger at him, it means stand still, plant all four feet, do not move. Right, right. When you're breaking a dog, what are you teaching that dog to do? Exactly what needs to happen. Plant all four feet, do not move, stand yep. still. Right. And and that's but see I think the connotation it doesn't matter whether it's a backing dog or a pointing dog. You're breaking them into that thing. But Mr. Moore, I think the un, the word I think the word breaking is misunderstood and you just broke that sure down. The word because twenty years ago we did break those dogs. Now we it, had to take the spirit out of now explain to me what you ex, please, and if you don't mind, explain what that means when you say you had to take the spirit out. I want to be very clear. Well, I understand it. it don't get me wrong. It would take an hour to go back in history, but I'll shorten it by saying this: mm -hmm. thirty years ago, when we went to Canada with Derby dogs, mm -hmm. everybody knew that at ten o'clock in the morning. The old chickens, the grouse up there, go to the mops because they're shade tree areas. They're islands of growth. Right. Buckbrook, Wolf Willow, Popular, they're trees and brush. And the chickens and the grouse get on the shady side of those things. And you can actually walk up there quiet and hear them. They get rid of body heat by clacking their beak, by opening and shutting their mouth and exhaling. And you can actually hear one of those old grouse clacking, clack, 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 cooling himself off in that shady part of the knot. So when we went up there 30 years ago with our derby dogs, when we got ready to break a derby, we'd call everybody that trained within two or three miles. Mm -hmm. And everybody brought a stick about an inch in diameter and four feet long. And we'd get on a horse, four, five, six of us, and we'd turn the dog loose, and we'd point him toward that mop. And when he ran anyplace else, you corralled him with your horse, and you thumped him with that stick. And you pointed him toward that mop, and you taught him by thumping him with that stick that he needed to go to the downwind side, to the shady side, because that's where the game was. Wow. Wow, and that was before collars and, and all of that. We went in the mop and came out the wrong place. We thumped him with that stick and sent him back in there again. Wow. And That's that, the way we literally broke derbies back then to teach him how to point a bird. 30 years ago, only about 50% of the pointing dogs would actually point birds. Yeah. You had to teach the dogs how to point. Wow. And y'all were doing all of this without e-call. This was a long time ago. Yeah. No electric collars of any kind. No tracking collars of any kind. No. 
Right. So when we got a first-year dog that should be broke steady to William Shock, and he moved on his game, you literally picked him up. And you use a steel shank flushing whip. Have you ever seen one of those? No, I've never seen one of those. I've got one in my buggy, my side-to-side full before. You come up to a seminar, I'll show you one. If you don't mind, I want to see it. It's about three feet long, two pieces of leather, with a big enough hole in the center that there is a piece of spring steel inside of it. Wow. And then there's about... 10 or 12 inches of leather poppers on the end of it. Right. And you can wear a dog out with one of those. And we used to wear one of those out every year, literally. You bought them two and three at a time because you would wear them out on those dogs down because dogs were, one, dumb, two, hard-headed, and three, the genetics was not, not all that good. Okay, so... Along came Farrell Miller with Miller's Silver Bullet. Mm-hmm. And he turned the pointer world upside down. What? As an amateur, he beat the pros to death. He has over a thousand championship placements. Championship placement. That is not weekend qualified dog placement. Yeah, like for real. Championship That he is a bird dog like guru. Jesus Christ. He is the father of the modern bird dog, and Miller's silver bullet was the main key, main cog in all of the development of the modern bird dog. Now. The dogs as stout and as strong and as bullheaded as they were 30 years ago? Good Lord, no. Thank goodness they're not. Are they smarter than they were 30 years ago? <laughs> it's like comparing a kindergartner to a college graduate. <laughs> but they Are were. They handier? Are they easier to train? Oh, tenfold. Right. And, that, and that's to be expected, uh, you know, based on time. That's to be expected, but the way that you guys were, and I and I want to say that word again because honestly, I've started to use that word as I've understand and I've grown as a, a trainer and a handler. And I went down to Thomasville. I'm gonna get on that in a minute too. But when I say to people breaking dogs, I want to be very clear about what that means and you explained it perfectly. Like, I don't want this to be a podcast that we, um, and Mr. Moore, if you don't mind my French again, I don't want this to be a podcast to sprinkle sugar on shit, if that means anything. Um, well, you know, the bird dog world has changed, thank goodness, in the last 30 years, and it's way for the better. Right. Way for the better. It, it is. Uh, the average person now can buy a well-bred puppy and have some degree of confidence that the puppy he gets is going to point and it's going to retreat. Absolutely. And if all he walks is a hunting companion, he's a hog heaven. Right. And, and it doesn't matter what breed of dog you buy, whether you're talking short hairs, Brittany, wire hairs, 
Vizalas, pointers, setters. Mm-hmm. Now then, if we're talking about field file dogs, then we're talking about a horse of another color. Yes, sir. We're talking about draft horses, quarter horses, Arabians, and thoroughbreds. Mm-hmm. Now, what did you ride? Oh, you smart. Oh, Mr. Miller. Mr. I'm sorry. Oh, my gosh. I got Miller and more. I want a Tennessee walking horse. I, I promise you. I told my wife when I turned 33, I'm going to buy her one and myself a Tennessee walking horse. Why are those such good horses and why do I want one, sir? They're an old man's horse because, number one, they're smarter than the other breeds of horses. Number two, they're gated. Yep. And an old man can sit up there and ride one for four or five hours and not be in the hospital the next day. Oh my gosh. I have, I don't know what I'm, well, that too. And again, going back to what we were saying earlier, um, when you look at something and it's really pretty, you know, good genetics. Um, when I saw a Tennessee walking horse, I, I, that's what I wanted. And I've wrote, I've rode Arabians. I've rode, um, I can't remember what the other one was, but it wasn't an Arabian. Um, and I can send, I'll send you a picture of it a little bit later. But I want a Tennessee walking horse so bad. I want one for my wife and I want one for myself. Well, you know, if you get bit by the point of bug bad, you'll end up living in the country. And you'll end up with a big horse trailer. And you'll end up with a minimum of four horses. Mm-hmm. And you'll have a kill full of bird dogs. And your wife will be... Mad at you continually because the bank account is on the verge of being overdrawn. Right, 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 right. Well, look, she ain't in the room right now. She's in the other. So when she listens to this podcast, I'm going to blame you when she's mad at me. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to say, Bud Moore told me that this is what I had to do. <laughs> I, um, okay, you, now then. Uh, look, I got a, I got a game plan. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I got a game plan. Now, let me ask you this. Okay. And pardon me for having your time. I'm going to ask you a little bit more and we can wrap up. Um, And with this episode, I do want to get into some hopefully not controversial, but real history um, because you did live at that time. I'm going to tell you also why I want to ask you this question. I didn't add it in the questions before. I didn't plan it. So my apologies um, for asking. But you were around. I met the gentleman, Neil Carter Jr., back in, you know, down in Thomasville. I told you that. Right. Yes. As. And he's almost as old as I. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And and I respect him like I, I respect. right. He's about, what, 63? He's, 65? I think he's mid-60s. I think he's yeah. mid-60s. Okay. But that's who I'm going down and train. And if I'm not mistaken, I I can't remember his age, but I think he's mid 60s. Um, But I do want to ask you this because I respect Neil Carter Jr. And and he welcomed me into his house and all of that stuff. Um, He and his wife were so kind. And I respect him like I respect you. What as I'm a young African-American man trying to raise bird dogs and the environment nowadays is totally different than it was back then. I think you can agree. 
maybe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What do you mind kind of talking about what that would have been like for someone like me back in that time? Because Neil Carter Jr. has is another one that I think is up there with you and Delmar. What would that have been like? And what did you observe if you don't mind talking about that? Let me preface this by saying, do you know Mike Hester? No, sir, I do not. Mike Hester is a professional dog trainer who feels out on the major circuit, and he was at our trial uh, the second week of November, the Sunflower Open All-Age Classic in Hell Creek, Mississippi. Yes, sir. Uh, Mike is also an African-American. Okay. Uh, I do not ever refer to Mike that way. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I just I just ride up alongside and put my arm around him and shake his hand and say, how's the world treating you? Yeah. Uh, in the bird dog world today, we are much more cognizant of a changing world, not only a change in the bird dogs of the world, but a change in the social setting of the world. Yes, sir. And social media has done a lot for that. Yes, sir. 30 years ago, there were, and I'm going to use the term people of color. Yes, sir. I understand. Yes, sir. That were accepted as owners and were accepted as trainers and were accepted as in society as a part of the bird dog world. Yes, sir. Now, there were also many scouts that grew up on plantations, that worked on plantations, that sole purpose in life was to help that trainer show that dog. Mm-hmm. They trained the dogs, they fed the dogs, they cleaned up after the dogs, and at the field trials, they turned the dogs loose, and when the dog went off, they went off. When the dog showed up out front, all of a sudden they would be in the gallery coming in from behind. Nobody ever saw them leave. Nobody ever saw them come back. There were five or six people that we have actually been actively involved that worked as scouts. Peck Kelly was one. Man Rand was one. And those people need to be in the Bird Dog Hall of Fame because of their influence and the roles they played in training those dogs for those major circuit handlers. Wow. And those handlers would tell you they wouldn't have won near as much without those scouts. Wow. That is... And and Neil Carter, he explained that to me. Um and you guys narratives literally line up and I just appreciate that acknowledgement. Um, you know, for me being someone from Georgia, uh, I, I very seldom do I have, a, especially from Atlanta, Georgia, very seldom do I have any kind of folks that look like me that run bird dogs. That's kind of a dying tradition, but so many of us back in the day did that. And that was very much so a part of culture. And 
it's very interesting to me how that part of history honestly is lost, Mr. Moore. That's why I wanted to ask. Um, I know I didn't really plan that, but it kind of just hit me. And I knew that you would be very real about it and very honest. Um, and so I appreciate you elaborating on that a bit. You know, when I met Neil Carter Jr., it's interesting to me because you guys train dogs the same. And and Richard and I were talking about it. Um, and and I, I asked him, I was like, man, what do you think happened during a time where black folks, honestly, and we all know, weren't treated well? But the bird dog handlers on the plantations who were black trained the same way as as you, as Delmar, as everything. So there had to be something in common with you guys, you know? You guys knew the same information, and that's very interesting to me. So I... What is interesting to me is that you run into people that you've never met before that are good at what they do, that they're doing the same thing you're doing and are using the same basic techniques. Their methodology may be a little different, but the same basic techniques are there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where did those techniques come from? Where did that power of original thinking come from? Uh, I like to think that I invented a lot of what I'm doing. And yet, as I travel around the country and have for the past 60 years running bird dogs, Mm -hmm. uh, I find a lot of people doing the same thing I'm doing. Yep. So, and that that to me... A lot of thinking has been going on. Yes, sir. Wow. That is... I mean... I would like to think that training a bird dog, if you, if I go out and do the same thing that you go, went out and did when Delmar told you to sit up under a tree that morning, I think that for some odd reason, because of the, the relationship between a dog and a man, and I think that is a, a divine relationship, I do. I really think so. Um, I think that we would all come to the same conclusion i do based on what you're telling me i feel like if i go down to um south georgia and just sit and watch quail i think that we would be able to help figure out these dogs and the way to train them because it's all i think it's all this the the universal truth to bird dogs is all the same am i making any kind of sense sure sure i think that you're you're much older than I am. I have this crazy deference to you and I really respect you. But I think and and you know, not counting the years of experience that you have on me, every all the bird dog information, the the there's one universal way to communicate with the dog, not train them. But I think there's a, a when, when we're talking about getting these dogs onto the level that we need them to be at. You, Neil Carter Jr., Delmar Smith, Robert Whaley, y'all figured it out. And, and it's not much else like the, the, the wheel is not broken. No, it's not. The wheel is not broken. And 
I look on now, and you know, nowadays, my generation, we've got the internet, we've got YouTube, we've got, and everybody can be a, a bird dog trainer. Okay. Everybody can be a bird dog trainer. If you got a video, uh, 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 you know, a, a video camera on your phone and, uh, an account with some social media platform, anybody can be a bird dog trainer. And the thing is, when I came into this, because I have, I love pointers. That's why I'm getting one. And I started with a retriever. But to me, it's all the same. All of the guys before 1960 figured it out. And we didn't need no more information. That's my opinion. Y'all had it. Well, we had to change our, our what we did with our information, though, after the 60s. Mm-hmm. Because Miller's Silver Bullet was a, an 80s dog. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, I think he was a 90s dog. And he's the, he's the, really the dog, uh, Farrell and, and Silver Bullet turned the point of world upside down. Right. Literally. The breeding changed, the training methods changed. Uh, and part of it was that we lost so much in the way of habitat and field file ground. Mm-hmm. We used to talk in terms of wanting a prairie all-age dog. And I love a true prairie all-age dog. Yes, sir. One that in front of a good Tennessee walking horse will fade a mile into the country and we search for game. Where can you show one of those dogs today? Um, we don't have any field files where you could show one like that outside of Canada. Are you serious? Like I'm dead serious. And we have no field file grounds where we can show that kind of dog anymore. If they're making a half mile swing in the Midwest and the Mid South, they're just almost out of contention. If they're over seven or eight hundred yards in tiny woods, they are out of contention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that and I think that's my I think that's my hiccup is there is nowhere to show those type of dogs and y'all were doing it back then and the standard was so high. I think there should be somewhere. You, Mr. Moore, are we getting soft on the dogs? Is that what I'm feeling? And not soft in a in a pressure way, but are we are what's going what am I feeling? You are feeling uh nostalgia. Okay. Because you realize that the world that you're living in now is not the world that the bird dog came from. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm a, a very, very complete political person. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I'm a Jeffersonian states writer in my politics. Uh, and I long for what I call the good old days. Mm-hmm. But we'll never see those again, and we'll never see the habitat or the large acreages again for the bird dogs. No. So something has to change. We either have to quit the bird dogs on the field island or modify what we're doing and still enjoy our love of the sport and the love of the animal. Right. And I think that's what it is. I mean, and all I can do is 
as a as like I said, I got a lot of. I'm not gonna consider them odds, but there are a lot of things that that I've honestly had a few eyebrows raised when I tell people like, yeah, I'm in the bird dogs, and wall and 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 so I'm very big into history and understand and understanding, you know, how we got here and the people that I need to owe it to and even understanding how African-Americans did it back in the day. And, you know, and it, you know, I'm, I'm just that type of person. I'm educated. I like to read. Um, and I want to read from my Robert Rourke's and my Ozark Ripley's and my Havila Babcock, you know, I'm that type of person. And even going out and, and writing a book on you and stuff, to have that opportunity, that would mean the world to me because I just feel like I started this podcast to communicate something that is lost. Maybe that's why I started this podcast to communicate something that's lost um, in the bird dog culture. And I haven't been doing it, you know, but three years. I got a Labrador. I don't even have a pointer until February, but I still feel something. And even before I got into, um, you know, uh, hunting dogs, to be honest, and I don't know how many people know this about me, but I was, quote unquote, training pit bulls, American Staffordshire Terriers. And I was because it was fun to me. You know, I was as a child walking around in the woods and honestly shooting squirrels and working on my aim with a BB gun. You know, I was that type of kid. Um, I wanted to know how things worked and I wanted to know how things operated, um, even though I grew up in the city of Atlanta, which most people may not know. It has a lot of forest area. And when I when I'm out there with my dog, I sit and look at a lot of this and a lot of that on social media and much of my platform is built off of that. But I still read these books. I read Delmar's book. I read Whaley's book. Um, I read anything that reminds me of the times before. And it's, I honestly get the same feeling from all the folks that lived in that time. Y'all figured it out. There's nothing else that anybody needs to figure out about a bird dog because at this point in time I feel like we're just refining off refining what you guys set the foundation for and really there and correct me if I'm wrong I don't think there needs to be much refining to y'all's process yours Delmar's or anything you figured it out well I, I will I will interject this okay that the modern bird dog is a much softer mm -hmm. animal than the old-timey bird dogs were. So we have mod had to modify our training to relieve the stress on these dogs. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to break a dog's spirit today than it was 30 years ago. Yeah. And we have to be very, very careful that we don't overstress these dogs. And that's why I advertise my way of training as stress-free. Mm -hmm. I try to show you how to relieve the stress off of that dog, how to get that dog relaxed. Yeah. Do you know what a dog does when it's relaxed? What's that? 
licks its lips. Yep. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I actually... When I have a young dog on the barrel, it doesn't matter if it's a six-week-old puppy or a six-year-old hunting dog. Mm-hmm. And I keep taking my old dogs back to the barrel. They all love it. They'll get up on the barrel on their own and stand there. Mm-hmm. Because they know they're going to get hands all over. All I'm going to make love to them with my hands. I'm going to touch them. Yes, I'm sir. I'm going to rub them. I'm going to scratch it. Yes, sir. Get the one place on a dog they cannot scratch. Uh, that's a good question. Where is that? Right between their shoulder blades. And they like that. That's why my dog always likes it when I scratch there. Okay. Huh. That's making love to a dog when you do that. Okay. And I'm sure that if yours years likes that, you've seen him just almost melt. Oh, he turns in... He turns into a whole pint of Briar's or a Bluebell ice cream. I mean, yep. he just falls apart. And I didn't, I just thought that was maybe his spot, but wow, I did not know that that was just a, a thing for dogs. Okay. Wow. Scratch everywhere else with their feet and their claws, but they can't get between their shoulder blades. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. So we running on two hours and I do want to be mindful of your time is my last two questions and I will definitely stop bugging you in your ear. So, <laughs> um, you told me, this is the, the second to the last question. You told me that dogs are right or left-handed. What does that even mean? Yes, sir. Uh, given a situation where a dog thinks with his right brain or his left brain, Mm-hmm. Okay, are you left-handed? Yeah, I'm I'm left-handed, dominant, and ambidextrous uh, overall. Okay, but if you're left-handed, mm-hmm. which side of your brain is most active? I think it's opposite, so the right side. That's right. If you're left-handed, you're in your right brain. Mm-hmm. If you're right-handed, you're in your left brain. Yes, sir. Dogs' brains are split right down the middle. They're not built like ours, but they're split right down the middle. Hmm. Now, if a dog is left-handed and he goes over the hill on you, and when you go over the hill, you don't see him anywhere, what direction are you going to turn to go look for him? The right. To the left. I'm sorry, to the, yeah, opposite. Yeah, to the left. He's left-handed. Yeah, he's left-handed. He's going to go to the... Left. 99 times out of 100, he will turn left. Okay. If he's left-handed. Right. If he's right-handed, 99 times out of 100, he will turn right. To the right. Yes, now, sir. Now, why is that important? You have a you have a, a dog and you put him in an amateur stage and, and uh, you came out here to Kansas to run in the uh, Holland Point Run and Gun Derby Classic. With your with your new pointer and he's a derby, and you didn't bring a scout with you. You're just gonna let somebody from the gallery scout him. You're gonna tell that scout his name and whether he's right-handed or left-handed. Right. Why is that? Because when he goes over the hill and he's out of sight, that scout knows where to go. Okay, gotcha. All of, okay, it's piecing itself together now. I um. 
Now, let's go back to an earlier example I made. Okay. When we were talking about putting an electric collar on a dog. Mm-hmm. And you're out hunting, and a rabbit jumps up, and you're just a puppy, and he's going to chase that rabbit. And he's headed toward a county road, and here comes a milk truck picking up milk from the dairy farm. And the truck's coming from right to left, and your dog is a left-handed dog. Is he going to turn in front of that truck or is he going to run parallel to that truck? Coming from, if, the, if the milk truck is coming from the left side? Coming from the right going left. Coming from the right going left. He's going to turn running away from it if he's left-handed. That's right. Yep. That's right. So yep. how much electricity are you going to use with the extension with? Less than you would on the going the opposite direction. Yeah. If, he turned, if he was a right-handed dog, he'd be turning into that truck. He'd be turning into it, and I'm going to have to get him, you know, away from it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So knowing whether your dog is right-handed or left-handed can be very, very important. So how do you, like my dog now, because I never thought about it, and I'm sure it applies to English pointers, labs, whatever. I want to go outside tomorrow and figure that out. How would I go about doing that? Okay. Just go back. You gotta learn to read your dog, don't you? Yes, sir. And I and I think I have good communication with my dog. To be honest, um, for him to be my first gun dog, and you know, you might look at him and be like, uh, "Boy, that ain't no good. There's <laughs> nothing, you know, worth me looking at." But I'm I'm pretty proud of him. Um, but of course, huh? Proud of them. They're doing their job then. Okay. Okay. You didn't mind impress me. Yeah. I understand. I, you know, I just, I always feel like I'm learning and trying to make the most out of these conversations. So, again, even, and, and though you work pointers, I'm still going to go out tomorrow, like I said, and figure out is my dog left or right handed? Like, that's something important for me to do um, as far as further understanding. You know, it's, man, <laughs> I'm, I'm mind blown. You've got a retriever, and let's say that you're going to hunt upland game with him like pheasants. I do, all the time. Okay, so you want that dog to develop a windshield wiper pattern then, don't you? Yes, sir. So if he's right-handed and he's going to the right, He's probably not going to turn back and, and slip across the field to the left on his own, is he? Nope, and that's why you get that. I was You're probably going to have to help him, aren't you? Right. Help him out. That's right. Yep. You're going to have to anticipate. You're going to have to participate. You're going to have to communicate. So you say, huh? And what's he going to do then if he's up the train? He should come the other way when you say it. Yep. Absolutely yep. So, I you know, you know it, it, knowing what a dog's right-handed or left-handed can be important in a lot of ways mm-hmm. for a lot of subjects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most of all, it's just one of the key ingredients in reading your dog and knowing who your dog is and what to expect out of your dog because you have to learn to anticipate what the dog's going to do yep. before he does it. Wow, um, that 
I'm about to a- apply the school of eights to a Labrador. Wow. <laughs> that now, is. I'm going to give you another truism that and I don't know where it came from, but it's something I developed when I was developing young judges, getting a young person that hadn't judged that much or maybe even his first judging assignment, more judging a bird dog. And he said, Mr. Moore, what do you look for? And I said, first off, it's Bud. It's not Mr. Moore. I put my pants on just like you do. <laughs> yeah. But all dogs have a job to do. Everybody at a field trial has a job to do. Mm-hmm. Okay? The dog's job at a field trial or out in a hunting field is first off to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. When he gets there to do something, you want him to go to a birdie place, you want him to point the bird. That's going somewhere, that's doing something. Mm-hmm. And the third key is he's got to look good doing it. Yep. Absolutely, he's got to. That's his job. I agree. So a dog's got to go somewhere. He's got to do something when he got gets there, and he's got to look good doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's any breed. <laughs> that's any. That's right. That's any breed. Yeah. That's Labrador Retrievers. That's German Wirehairs. Britons. That's Setters. That's Pointers. Right. And it doesn't matter whether you're hunting or field fire. Right. And and see, that's what it is that I'm really trying to articulate with my my bird dog education and, and what it is that I do you know in this and why I'm so just drawn to talking to you I've been I've learned more in these two hours than I've learned in the, the three years that I've been doing this Thank you. you know I'm I'm so serious Mr. Moore I mean this and, and it's it's interesting because it goes across the board. So, my last thing um, before we get off, I do want to talk about um, the Molly video that I'm uh, going to get from you. Just real quick or real short, can you talk about you know some of the details about that video and and how folks can get a hold of it? Okay, we have actually had three videos. You're, you're looking at one right now, the seminar that went off June 2nd here mm-hmm. at the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a complete video with the School of Apes. And then we go up to my office, the barrel at the top of the hill, mm-hmm. uh, with the picket hat. About 12 weeks old at that time. And we worked, Molly was the first dog that we worked. Put her on the barrel, and then we took her out little point birds. And then we demonstrated the four-foot short pigeon pole with her finding birds and pointing birds. And we demonstrated the big 10-foot pigeon pole uh, with her pointing birds. And uh, then we we did a seven-month-old puppy, big male puppy, Mm -hmm. and uh, turned him loose, just turned him loose out the field and uh, let him hunt and find birds and do his thing. And then I had Ruby, our uh, derby sensation, and she was a little over a year old at that time, and we worked her, and then we uh, put Gus on the barrel and 
I finished up today leaving Gus on the barrel with pigeons on the ground. Mm. I believe in having lots of pigeons around when I'm training on the barrel. And I let them walk around on the ground. I've got them in cages up on the barrels. Uh, so the dog's got to look up at them all the time. I've got one on the pigeon pole that I can fly in front of the dogs on the barrel. Mm-hmm. Leaving a lot of birds when I'm doing barrel work. Right. The barrel simply gets the dog's mind ready to go out in the field, find and point birds, and do it right, and do it with style. Yep. Now, and now, you you style, like the hooks on the barrel, right? Like uh, on the front and the back? Yes. Yes. My barrel has a bar across the top, uh, and I have uh, diagrams with all of the sizes on my barrel if anybody wants. Any of those, they can contact me, and I'll be glad to send them okay. uh, pictures and diagrams with all the sizing of everything on my barrel set up. Well, I need to get uh, that from you also, so I can start working on building that. Yeah, good. Uh, the Molly video that you asked about, uh, we acquired Molly from the same breeder that we got Ruby from. Mm-hmm. Uh, a man by the name of Derek Bonner in Moore's. Borough, North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, bred, both of them. Uh, we got both of them when they were eight weeks old, and Derek's wife, Debbie, does a tremendous job of raising and starting and stimulating these puppies at an early age. Right. So we got Molly at, eight, at about eight weeks, and the first thing we did was take her to the pigeon house and uh, got her where she knew what was in the pigeon house and she loved to make pigeons fly in the pigeon house. And uh, so then we started walking her toward the pigeon house and I'd actually push her. Well, when she recognized what the pigeon house was, she learned to run then instead of walk in front of it. Wow. Because her little short legs would go. And after we got her running to the pigeon house, then we used a body harness and we broke her to leave. Uh, after we broke her to leave, then we broke her to stand still. Uh, the next thing then was to uh, introduce her to birds, and we started getting her pointing pigeons on the four-foot pigeon pole, and uh, I started woe-breaking her on the barrel when she was about nine or ten weeks old. By the time she was uh, four months old, we were teaching her woe, uh, stand still on birds, on the pigeon poles out the hay at it. So we took Molly from an eight-week-old puppy to a six-month-old puppy, took her step-by-step, teach her to run in front of us, to find birds, to point birds, to smell birds with their nose, be stylish, find wild birds, be stylish, and whoa. Wow. So then we went to North Dakota and taught her to hunt in North Dakota at tremendous range, at tremendous speed, and find and point wild birds. <laughs> so we brought her home in September, put her back on the barrel, taught her what world meant all over again, just click bang, and those little minds bring out that folder that's in that file, and, oh, I've done this. I know what this means. <clears throat> She was six months and one day old when we put her in a first field flock. Wow. Jesus. And she was just a little bitty puppy. Everything was new to her. She hadn't been around crowds. She hadn't been around that many illustrators, that many horses. 
that many people. And, of course, she wanted to see it all and gawk at all of it. Uh, but she was good enough. They placed her third in the very first try. That is amazing. That is a talented the little dog. Trial, she was, knew what Field Island was all about. She blew the front end off of it now. She found fifth line and a boat strip, and she knew what that meant. She knew what to do with it, and she went over the hill. We walked for about five minutes with her totally out of sight, and then one of the judges said, Nine o'clock coming at you, bud. And here she came across the front. And at 50 yards, she took her cue from me and found another boat strip and blew out the front door to the front again. Wow. For 25 minutes, we watered her and stood her up. When the judges came over the hill behind us, I hit her with the whistle and she faded outside to the front. The rest is history. The last four field trials we put her in, she just blew the front door off everybody's wheels. Uh, she had four first in a row, bang, 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 bang. So she was six for six in six field trials. So this video then talks about what we did, why we did it, how we did it, what results we were expecting, and when we had a left turn, what did we do about it? For all of those steps, run to the front, find birds, point birds, whoa. Wow. And y'all got that little dog. I mean... Um, fantastic. Yeah. That that speak. And I mean, how do you argue with last, that? Last week we had her down. She blew through the country in front of the side by side. Uh, had two bird contacts. The first one she was beyond. The second one she jumped when I flushed a bird and fired the gun, but she didn't go anywhere. Wow. So she's well on her way to being as you asked the question about broke. Okay. Mm -hmm. All she needs now is polish. Instead of talking about breaking a dog, I'd much rather say polishing the dog. And so the next video we do will be polishing mom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've got 90 minutes now of mine from eight weeks to six months. What we did, why we did it, how we did it, when we did it. Mm -hmm. That's Molly video. Uh, they're $55, that's shipping included, U.S. currency. And I have to put that in there because I've had requests from the Canary Islands, Guam, Iceland. So I always say $55 U.S. Wow. Uh, <laughs> it costs $15 to send that tape to the Canary Islands, I can tell you that. But people over there want it, though. And again, we're talking about your influence. That says a lot. So, that is crazy. That's the power of social media today, Facebook and Twitter and those things. Well, and that's that's totally correct. Um, I appreciate. I would not be on the phone with you without social media, to be honest, because in the internet and stuff like that. Because I met Richard, who directed me to you, and. I, you know, I've been able to start a platform that I, I would like to say, uh, you know, humbly, it does. It does pretty well. And I'm really trying to make this my life's work. You know, I'm a school. I'm, I'm 
Well, and I appreciate it. And, and to be honest, Mr. Moore, and maybe people know this about me, I'm a school teacher, but my ten, I'm, I've declared that my tenure for uh, teaching is going to end this school year. Like, I'm trying to... No, sir, I'm going to spend the rest of my life teaching, but not in a public school classroom. Well, I didn't say that. Right. I know. I I want to continue teaching. Right. You're teaching. Yeah. Yes, sir. No, you're teaching me. We have a website. Uh-huh. We have a uh, Yes, sir. I will do. I'll post all of that stuff in the show notes. Well, Mr. Moore, I, as we conclude, I can't say thank you, but a million times over. Well, thank you. It's been my privilege. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, all right, guys. Well, this is the Gundog Notebook Podcast. I don't know if your mind was blown, but mine's definitely was. Um, take all of that in. And we will catch you next week for another episode, guys. See you later.